in association with the Central Valley Cafe Scientifique, we strive to make science a part of our public discourse, especially here in California's Central Valley. I'm your host, Dr. Madhusudan Katti from the Biology Department at Fresno State. Let's start with a quick roundup of some science stories that caught my eye in recent weeks, all were brought to my attention by our, our correspondent, Chris Hensley, a graduate student of biology at Fresno State. We've known for years that Yellowstone National Park sits atop a, an enormous pool of molten rock and is dubbed a super volcano. Although scientists estimate its chances of erupting at nearly zero, it has the power to cause drastic far-reaching effects. Now, geophysicist Xinhua Huang from the University of Utah and colleagues have discovered a previously unknown magma chamber hiding under the park. This new chamber holds more than four times the volume of magma in the known chamber. This discovery does not change estimates of the low risk of eruption, but it may help us better understand the incredible geological forces that shape the beautiful landscape of Yellowstone. This week, of course, there is a dark shadow over any talk of geological forces transforming beautiful landscapes. Tectonic energy from the ongoing slow-motion collision of the Indian subcontinent into Asia created the beauty of the Himalaya. Last weekend's earthquake, which tore through Nepal, destroying countless human lives, is a reminder of the awesome power of such forces. It is to be hoped that science can help us be become better at forecasting such earthquakes to prevent future calamities by giving people a chance to prepare for and escape from the worst disasters. We are getting better at this, but still have a long way to go. And our thoughts are with the people of Nepal this harrowing week. Every student of ecology learns about the wolf and moose populations on Michigan's Isle Royale. For the past, past 57 years, the wolves and moose of Isle Royale have been locked in a struggle for survival. At least we've observed them for 57 years. The isolated nature of these populations on the island allowed scientists to study the interactions between predators and their prey without the complications of immigration and emigration. But now the study may be coming to an end. The wolf population of Isle Royale has plummeted from a high of 50 to its current level of only three individuals. Scientists blame inbreeding for a sudden decline. Repeated breeding between related individuals is common in isolated populations on islands and weakens populations due to lack of new genetic diversity. Sometimes new wolves can colonize the island via winter ice bridges, but global climate change has decreased the frequency of these opportunities to almost zero and the wolf may be facing extinction on the island. Last week the Hubble telescope which was launched into space on April 24, 1990 turned 25 years old. Scientists celebrated the event with a four-day symposium in Baltimore, Maryland focused on what the telescope can accomplish in its remaining years. Some astronomers hope to use the Hubble to investigate distant exoplanets, planets in other solar systems that may be capable of sustaining life, while others are attempting to track the expansion rate of the universe. The Hubble is now helping find answers to questions that hadn't been dreamt of at its launch 25 years ago. What questions will it be answering 25 years from now? Turning inwards now, let's talk about several new papers about genetic modification and the exchange of genes between organisms. GMOs are a controversial topic generating much fear among the public, often without justification because the ones on your grocery shelves are not known to pose any threat to human health. Yet they continue to scare us, even if we cannot define what GMO means. 
perhaps because we tend to think of our genetic material as sac sacrosanct and unique to us as individuals, whether in humans or in other organisms. Reality, though, is far more complicated and interesting than our narrow fears. Do you like eating sweet potatoes of the organic heirloom variety, perhaps? If so, then listen up. You are eating a genetically modified organism. A new study of the genome of sweet potatoes found them to contain sequences of tDNA, which is a type of DNA that is actively making something in the cells, originating in bacteria. What's more, this bacterial DNA sequence is present in all varieties tested, including some really old ones, suggesting that the genetic transfer probably happened long before humans domesticated the sweet potato. It appears, therefore, that the sweet potato somehow genetically modified itself. Perhaps it was something that the bacterial DNA makes in the sweet potato which made it attractive to humans in the first place. So all sweet potatoes are GMOs, and at least these ones we cannot blame Monsanto for creating them as franken vegetables. Meanwhile, a team of scientists in China published a new paper last week reporting that they applied a new technique for more precise editing of DNA called CRISPR to edit genes in human embryos. That study has kicked up quite a controversy, given the ethical implications of being able to manipulate human genes directly and cheaply, and the resulting prospect of designer babies. The ethical controversy is also laced with anxiety about the Chinese beating Western scientists in making this break breakthrough, as exemplified by American scientists accusing China of ethical laxity. Given the history of eugenics and racial anxiety in America, isn't that a bit like the pot calling the kettle black? Regardless, we are definitely heading into a brave new world of genetic modification. Uh, it is my great pleasure now to welcome Dr. Ulrike Müller from my own biology department at Fresno State. Hello. Dr. Müller grew up in Germany and completed her education and training at universities across Europe, including an undergraduate degree from Germany, a doctorate from the University of Groningen, and subsequent postdoctoral research in the Netherlands, in Cambridge University in the UK, and in Japan, before heading west all the way to Fresno, or heading east from Japan, perhaps. <laughs> Over the past eight years, she has established the Fresno Biological Dynamics Studio in her lab, where she studies biomechanics using high-speed cameras. She's also quite an innovative teacher who is transforming how we teach biology at Fresno State. Welcome to Science, a Candle in the Dark, Ulrike. Thank you, my dear. Tell us, first off, uh, what is biomechanics, and how do high-speed cameras come into it? And before you answer, let me also remind you, as I do all our guests, uh, of the quote from, uh, as physicist Leo Zillard put it, you may assume infinite ignorance and unlimited intelligence on the part of our audience. So what is biomechanics? In my understanding, biomechanics is using ideas from physics and engineering to better understand what happens in biology. In biomechanics, in particular, is its mechanics. So I'm using Newton's law mm. of motion to understand how fish swim, mm -hmm. how birds fly, how insects walk, and how carnivorous plants catch their prey. Okay. Anything that moves. Okay, so movement of organisms as well as their body parts. Yes, indeed. And that's where the high-speed cameras come in. Because sometimes, especially when organisms are very small, mm -hmm. things can happen very fast. So fast that we can't see it. So then we need high-speed cameras to see what's actually happening. Okay, so can you give me an example of something that moves fast that we 
Um, for example, about 30 years ago, we were all convinced that insects can't fly. We meaning engineers, because <laughs> okay. our understanding of physics was insects can't fly. Airplanes can, insects cannot. Despite the evidence of insects flying all over the place. Well, engineers can't be wrong, can't they? Because okay. it looks like mathematical. Okay. So then we used high-speed cameras to actually visualize what happens around insect wings. Insects oh. beat their wings several hundred times per second. Okay. So you can't observe that with the naked eye. But when you use a high-speed camera, you can actually slow it down and you can actually see that they generate vortices, hmm. which is air currents that help them to stay in the air. Air currents that planes cannot generate at that rate hmm. and therefore insects can fly after all. So would the analogy there be more like helicopters rather than airplanes or is that stretching it too far? Um, the main problem is when you get, I mean, the main benefit of being very, very small is you can do things hmm. so fast that before the air realizes that things are going wrong, you're already done doing it. Ah. Airplanes, for example, when you pull up the nose, when wings glide through the air mm -hmm. and you have what's called an angle of attack. You're not ha holding your wing flat, you're holding your wing at a slight angle to the air. Mm. That generates lift. Yeah. If you pull the wing up so that this angle becomes steeper and steeper, you go into what's called stall. Initially, you generate more lift mm -hmm. and then suddenly, as you the lift, the air breaks away from the wing, lift plummets and the airplane okay. plummets out of the air. Now, if you beat your wing fast enough, you can actually make use of this effect. And before the air realizes that it needs to separate and stop generating lift, mm. you're already making the next vortex. Mm. And that's what insects can do. So by being very fast, you can actually use tricks that folks can't use, and by folks I mean airplanes, that mm -hmm. don't beat their wings. Even birds have trouble using those tricks because their wings beat too slowly. Ah, so size allows you to, be, to yeah. beat faster. Yes. The smaller you are, the faster you can move things, and the faster you can move things. You can start using tricks that mm -hmm. require that certain physical phenomena are what we call time-dependent. Mm -hmm. And so if you're fast enough, you can finish your movement before the time-dependence kicks in and makes this cool mechanism go away. Hmm. And I can see why you, you can't analyze this kind of motion if unless you have high-speed cameras that will mm -hmm. capture it. Mm -hmm. And by high-speed, we mean... They're not like uh, uh, the cameras we have in our phones or even uh, you know, professional photographers might use. Yeah. Because you have a, how, how do you define what is a high-speed camera? What do you mean by so that? So the high-speed cameras we have in my lab right now to study, for example, how fish larvae swim or mm -hmm. how carnivorous plants feed, we record at between 10,000 images per second and ah, 50,000 wow. images per second. This is very fast. Yeah. yeah. Much faster than what you would buy on a consumer camera, which is a few hundred images per second. It doesn't, that's okay to study a golf mm -hmm. swing, but mm -hmm. it's not good enough to study how an insect w beats his wings. Okay, that, that's really cool to do. And so you're talking about two sort of scales, your small spatial scales yes. as well as different time scales of, yeah. of movement. That's really fascinating. You mentioned insectivorous plants. Yes. Uh, we don't think about plants as being mobile very much. So tell, tell me about... Uh, you know, your work on, on this insectivorous plant. Which plant is it and how fast does it move? So we are studying a carnivorous plant called bladderwort. Mm -hmm. Turns out that half of the carnivorous plant species are actually bladderwort. Hmm. So people always think about Venus flytraps, which yeah. don't move particularly fast, or pitcher plants, which yeah. just sit around and trap insects by mm -hmm. the making them slip on their wax. These bladderwort are very active hunters. 
They have bladders underwater, so they're actually underwater hunters. They're not hunting in the air. And they make these little bladders. They have, they look like little sacks. They're about a millimeter in size. Okay, so at least for anyone who's already might have nightmares about carnivorous plants, yes. they needn't worry about bladder worms. No. One Even if they're toes. active hunters, they're nope. really small. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> One bite you. <laughs> right. You would have to be very small toes to be bitten by a bladderwort. Okay. <laughs> like I said, mm-hmm. the mouth size of a bladderwort is about um, 200 microns. I'm a European. Mm. I don't do inches. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's very, very small. It's a mm-hmm. few hair breadths. So okay. it's not... Smaller than the head of a pin. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they catch zooplankton. Okay. these pla- plants and so they have these little sacks that are about a millimeter in size with little mouth mm-hmm. 200 microns in diameter and they have a little trap door and mm-hmm. they can suck in their prey within less than a millisecond okay so you are captured between triggering the trap door and the trap door closing on you that's less than a millisecond wow so it's one of the fastest predators that we know it's actually wow. the fastest predator that we know in terms of how quickly it subdues and captures its prey Take that cheetah, I guess. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Slow. Yeah. Uh, uh, before we move on, I, I just want to remind our listeners that if you want to visualize what these movements look like, you should visit uh, Dr. Mueller's website, which you can access through the biology department's webpage at Fresno State. Uh, just search for Dr. Mueller, and uh, and we'll have a link to that on the uh, cafe website as well. Uh, and she has a gallery of videos showing some of these mm-hmm. high-speed movements. And, and the ones with the, uh, with the bladder water are quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, what other fast movements have you studied? And have you, can you share some interesting story about? I've studied mostly, like I said, how fish swim. Okay. That's sort of my PhD res- research. Mm-hmm. And uh, I studied a little bit how insects walk. Huh. And um, the problem with biomechanical research is when you're trying to sort of explain what it means, it gets, I have always struggled with not getting too technical. Mm-hmm. And um, so what we're interested in right now is that I'm wanting to study small animals, small organisms, because I think that they can do something very clever by using these mechanisms that are highly time dependent. Hmm. And we haven't really looked into this as what very much. What do you mean much. by that? I already explained to you about yeah. the insects that they yeah. have a highly time-dependent mechanism that they use to generate lift. Mm-hmm. We're now thinking that something similar might be going on with how small fish larvae feed oh. and how small fish larvae swim. They use these highly time-dependent mechanisms because when you're at that magic size of a few millimeters yeah. and you do things that take just a few hundred milliseconds, you can beat water to it. So the response of the medium yes. is not fast yeah. enough. You can get away yeah. with it. Normally yeah. when you're very small, water doesn't behave like water like the way we yeah. experience yeah. it as a inertial medium. as a medium that just feels heavy, mm-hmm. but other than that, flows really nicely. Mm-hmm. When you're very small, water feels like very thick honey, very thick molasses. Hmm. So when you're trying to move through it... Yeah. Lots of water drags along with you. It, imagine you had to swim in yeah. thick molasses or honey. Mm-hmm. And that's what life is like for a bladderwort. That's what life is like for a fish larva. So when engineers come at this, they always think there's no way that these guys can do anything interesting. Yeah, because I can't imagine being fast in, mo- in swimming through molasses. Exactly. So, mm. 
But that's because when we move in molasses, mm -hmm. we don't have muscles strong enough to move very quickly. Mm. When you're small, you're actually relatively strong. And you can do things very quickly and mm. thereby, like I said, complete your motion before water realizes that it has to behave like honey. You can actually beat water to the punch. And water doesn't realize, hey, I'm supposed to be viscous and slow you down. Wow, that's, that's really s fascinating to think about because yeah. we're not used to thinking about that kind of a time lag, that we can get away with beating physics in a way yes. at very small time scales. Yeah, because we're too big and slow. Yeah. That's why I All like right. my little guys and the high-speed cameras. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, you know, I, I study birds, and that's kind of where my understanding of biomechanics sort of is, is a little bit in that arena. And, and mm -hmm. you know, in the fast movements there is things we think about, like hummingbirds. And, and, and I know elevation can have an effect on, you know, how, how hummingbirds are able to swim or not. So even at, at, again, we're talking about small sizes there. Yeah. So you have things like the density of the medium influences movement and... Since I mostly work in water, mm -hmm. I have fewer density effects. Oh, ah, okay. Yeah. So I worry less about density effects than when you are in air, where, you, where altitude really changes okay. the density of the medium. There is no such effect in water because water is incompressible, as yeah. you know. Yeah. And therefore, we have fewer density effects. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm going to switch topics just a little bit mm -hmm. to explore some wider dimensions of this this field of biomechanics because it's it's bringing an engineering perspective to look at living organisms, mm -hmm. right? And of course, people love to compare the human body and you know the bodies and cells of other organisms to machines. And you can even in our classes we sort of use analogies of machines as as molecular machines and so on. But often this anal analogy is used to suggest that, uh, you know, like any machine is devised by human hands, living organisms must also be designed by some super intelligent being. So how else can one explain the precise, you know, design of a fish's tail or a bird's wings? So how do you explain such apparent mechanical perfection in biology? I usually come at intelligent design from a slightly different angle. Mm -hmm. I do use physics and engineering principles to understand how animals move. But I also have to admit as a biologist that, just like I told you the story with the, with the insect flight, when you come at it purely from an engineering point of view and think biology is just like engineering, you're selling it short. Mm. Biological organisms don't design a body part for one function. That's what engineers do. They can't wrap their head around putting more than one function into a particular aspect of their design. Yeah. Biology is fundamentally different. Yeah. All our body parts have many, many functions. Sometimes the functions are mm -hmm. even a little bit mutually exclusive, and you mm -hmm. have to sort of make compromises, but sometimes they're not. And that makes studying biological organisms very difficult because they're very complex, and functions are highly integrated. And that biological organisms are very, very different engineering designs. So you can tear up, tease apart mechanisms and study them in isolation. Although to some extent to understand them, you do have to do that. Yes, and uh, so I tease them apart a little bit, mm -hmm. and it helps me in understanding, but I also have to acknowledge that there are what biologists dismissively call constraints, that mm -hmm. sometimes a design isn't just for one purpose, and therefore it might not be 
designs are never optimal because they have to fulfill multiple functions. That's one reason they're not optimal. Mm -hmm. And this is another reason why I have a problem with uh, uh, intelligent design because it sort of implies that it's well-designed. Mm -hmm. Biological designs are not well-designed. For one, because they have multiple functions. The second reason they're well-designed is they have to be designed well enough. They don't have to be optimal. So you have to be good enough to win, to survive. You don't have to beat your predator ten times over. All you have to do is get the gold medal. You get the gold medal by being a millisecond faster. It makes no difference whether you're one millisecond faster or a hundred milliseconds faster. So biological designs are not optimal. They're so good enough. So is there such a thing as mechanical perfection in biology then? I am not aware not, yeah. of any perfection. It would be absurd. Yeah. It's not compatible with our understanding of evolution. Yeah. That's the other part of it, I guess. Is it yeah. Evolution is working on what's available material. Yeah. So you can't design some op something optimal. Yeah. Okay. It's a waste of energy to make it optimal. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. That's kind of gels with my understanding of biology as well. Uh, so what got you interested in studying biomechanics? I've heard you say numerous times that you never really took any biology classes in, in, in college. Yet here you are a biology professor and you're talking about some, some of the basic questions about living organisms and how they evolved. How did this happen? <laughs> I didn't. I did take biology classes. They just happened to be organismal rather than molecular and okay. cellular. Okay. And I never really liked chemistry. So I took physics engineering classes instead. I started, like so many biologists, wanting to become a cancer researcher. And I took a statistics class taught by uh, my biomechanics professor. And I took a genetics class, molecular genetics, by a professor who was terrible. And I decided, you know what? Perhaps biomechanics is more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and I never looked back. Here you are. And uh, so much the better for us. I think it's, it's, it's uh, quite fascinating. So um, you're also involved in number of other activities on our campus so how d how is it like being in, a, um, in an American university as a faculty after being in these other milieus in, in other countries for me I think the biggest switch was in Germany where I got my undergraduate degree universities are for free so we don't pay tuition fees hmm. that fundamentally That's changes the dynamics the US right now, yeah. oh yes so we have many people go to college because mm -hmm. you can go for free. Yeah. And while you're a college student, your health care is also much cheaper than when you have a normal job. So lots of people enroll. The first two years are all about weeding. So classes mm. are not okay. there to help you get through okay. and graduate. Classes are there to weed out people. So that creates a very different classroom atmosphere. So when I first came here, I had to stop weeding. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's a f big philosophical difference. And I wonder how, how much of a difference does it make in terms of how science is conducted in these different cultures or wh who ends up yeah. becoming a scientist? Europe, what people don't realize, I think, in America is that in Europe, f women are severely underrepresented in the sciences. And I think mm. one of the reasons is weeding. So whenever you ha come with a weeding attitude towards education, the people who are left over are the people in the majorities, not the minorities. So in America, 
there are about a third of the professors are in life sciences or in natural science in general, is about a third, a quarter of the professors are women. Mm -hmm. In many European countries, the Netherlands and Germany, where I spent most of my time, that percentage is well below 10%. Yeah. Despite us being about 50% of the graduate, uh, the PhD students. Mm -hmm. So there is a very hard glass ceiling. Yeah, and, and well, hopefully that, that ceiling is cracking because I think we need some greater diversity and representation in sciences as well. I think we're coming to a, a close to our, our time here. So thank you, Dr. Muller. It was a fascinating conversation, and I'm sure we'll keep talking about these things. Uh, one goal of the show is to explore the role science plays in society and how science can illuminate our public policy choices. And for this, for this month's uh, op-ed segment, we have a commentary by Dr. Andrew Rees-Jones from the sociology department at Fresno State. Dr. Jones offers a social science-based perspective on urban water use and water policy in California as we prepare to tackle a drought that is getting worse every day and uh, we have the water restrictions imposed by the governor that we have to, to address as well. So here's uh, Dr. Jones's uh, op-ed. Last week, an Orange County appeals court ruled that San Juan Capistrano's tiered water rates are unconstitutional arguing that charging people who use more water incrementally higher rates is a discriminatory practice. They saw tiered pricing as a violation of a voter-approved law that prohibits governmental agencies from charging more than the cost of a service. Approximately two-thirds of water districts in the state use some form of tiered pricing, and this ruling comes only weeks after Governor Jerry Brown issued an executive order to selectively cut water usage across the state by 25%. Given that we are experiencing an unprecedented drought in California, one wonders whether the science examining water use has any bearing on political and judicial decision-making. With respect to municipal water policies, tiered water pricing has served as an effective control on water use in arid urban environments in other states in which we call the Cadillac Desert. Cities such as Tucson, Arizona, use approximately 40% less water than Fresno, owing much of that lower usage to tiered pricing as well as to having a population that more readily embraces an ideology of ecological sustainability. Tiered water pricing is not the norm. Nationwide, most municipal water departments price water for delivery of service rather than for the water itself. This means water is priced well below what it should be, as water departments want to maintain revenue streams and discourage water conservation. News accounts of Californians reluctant to conserve water have included comments of residents of Fresno, who have stated they do not want to make their homes ugly by xeriscaping their lawns or by reducing the watering of their landscapes. This is consistent with what a team of researchers at California State University Fresno found in examining water usage within the Fresno Clovis metropolitan area. The urban long-term research area Fresno and Clovis Ecosocial Study Team, Ultrafaces, found cultural inertia evident in the landscaping and watering decisions of homeowners. Cultural inertia posits that any change in behavior on the part of individuals or groups may be hindered or enabled based on perceptions of whether some social transformation is already taking place, or whether existing social structural arrangements facilitate or deter efforts at change. The Orange County Appeals Court ruling would definitely qualify as a deterrent for efforts at changing the relationship Californians have with water. If we are to address the issues revolving around water in the state of California, 
We must transform not just our activities that involve the use of water, but also the culture. We know from the study of water consumption that household consumption of water is shaped and constrained by home design. For example, the age of the house, the form of irrigation technology employed, the residential landscape design involving the types of plants selected for landscaping, the status honor gained by conspicuous consumption of resources, or by decreased consumption through newer technology and design that may be linked to greater environmental awareness. Even if we convey such information to the public, helping people make better water use decisions, scientists and policymakers must still deal with cultural inertia, and the decision in Orange County has potentially made tackling that issue much more difficult. This is Andrew Jones for A Candle in the Dark. Finally, a quick reminder that the Central Valley Cafe Scientifique meets on the first Monday of each month at 7 p.m. in Peeves Pub on the Fulton Mall in downtown Fresno. For more information about the cafe and announcements about upcoming events, please visit our website at valleycafesci.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. And join us for a pint of the fine brews on tap at Peeves Pub with a hearty helping of science to nourish your mind. The next event will be next Monday on May the 4th and it will feature a presentation by our guest today, Dr. Ulrike Muller, uh, and she'll talk about biology through the lens of a high-speed camera and I think she'll show us some cool videos as well. If today's show intrigued you, do join us for the cafe for another chance to learn more and ask questions of Dr. Muller in person. Our show is produced by Vic Bedoyan and our theme music was composed by Scott Hatfield. Special thanks to Dennis Thompson today for engineering our show. Do tune in next month on May 26th for another episode of Science, A Candle in the Dark with our guest, astronomer Dr. Fred Ringwald from the Physics Department at Fresno State. Until then, happy sciencing because remember, science is a verb. This is David Barsamian of Alternative Radio and you are listening to KFCF Fresno 88.1 FM Free Speech Radio for Central California.